Well, morning, everyone. As Jeremy says, uh, my name's Steve. Um, I lead the youth work here, if, you, if you've not met me before. So normally, I'm, I'm not even in the service at this point. So it's a rare treat for me to, to be here right now. And um, I'm sure you'll feel the same over the next 80 minutes or so. Don't, don't, don't <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought you might not be impressed with that one, Harry. Um, don't worry, it's going to be much shorter than that. Um, so over the past few weeks here at the church, we've been thinking about um, how can we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and um, obviously, as a church, we're going through, through lots of change. And the Anamon have left. We've, as Jeremy said, we've, we've got a new leaders now, which is great. But they're not quite here yet. And, but actually, um, it's felt really important as a church for us to uh, choose to remember that um, Jesus is the one who this is really about. He's the one we're following. And he's in charge of the church. So um, I guess that's, I'm sure that's a big part of why we've said this, this, series, uh, this series is about fixing our eyes on Jesus. So we're going to keep doing that. Uh, the way we've been doing that over the past few weeks is to look at different aspects of Jesus, of his character, of what he's like, of who he is. And this morning, we're going to look at the fact that, that God is with us. That's kind of one of, the, one of the big things that Jesus represents. He represents God coming to be with us. And there's lots of names in the Bible for Jesus. And uh, the one that's to do with this is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that's what we're looking about this morning. And uh, just to take that fact at face value, that that is even something that we a a name that we can ascribe to God that's a way we can describe him that's a way that he's happy to be known I think is is really remarkable um I know that God is a a pretty tricky being or entity to categorize or describe you know we were talking about this on Tuesday actually in prayers um how do you how do you describe God um it's, it's not straightforward is it but However we want to describe God, whatever characteristics we give him, whatever we'd say of God, surely we'd want to say that God is the most powerful, the most majestic being, person, thing, anywhere, all the time. That's that's at least one thing that we would probably want to say of God. And the Bible also tells us that God is close to us. And I think that's nuts, that the, the most powerful being, the most incredible thing, the most, the most superlative anything that we can think of is also close to us. You know, I think we might maybe think that something like that might be nice and kind and so therefore might bless us in kind of a, oh, fine, here's some blessings or, you know, set the world up in a way that is, is nice for us. But no, the Bible goes much further than that. It says that God is, is really close to us. And I think that's nuts just to think about before we get into any detail, before we think about any bits of the Bible, that that, that is something that God is, says of himself. And he not, not just says it, he's something, it defines how he acts um, in the world, in history, in, in, in our lives. Um, I, I, you know, most uh, obviously through the fact that Jesus came and was, was on the earth, but um, through lots of other ways as well. Um, and, but despite this truth, despite this, this fact about God, despite this thing that we know, I think the, the caricature we have of God in the Bible is... Uh, sort of a, a remote and maybe even arbitrary judge, not particularly engaged with what's going on in the world, but might occasionally check in to do something spectacular. It might be a miracle, it might be a judgment, uh, but it, it might be spectacular, but someone's going to get zapped, um, either with the Holy Spirit or with a lightning bolt. And, but it's not, maybe not especially relational, and, it's, and it's not, you know, it might produce awe or wonder, but it doesn't necessarily produce kind of feelings of, being looked after or cared for and um i think this caricature of god is so powerful that i think it certainly describes the view of many non-christians and i I wonder at times if it's not so far from how we see it um unconsciously 
Um, so I know we're kind of talking about Jesus, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, but I wanted to begin at the very start of the Bible because I think it's really helpful to look at that and see how God's presence is actually with people the whole way through, that that's something that's integral to his character and how he relates to people the whole way through, not just when Jesus turns up. That's not a kind of shift in, in the plan or, or strategy. That's kind of integral to who God is the whole way through. Um, so uh, if we go back to the very beginning of the Bible, we, we know how this God goes. God makes the heaven and the earth, and it's good. God makes humans, and that's very good. Um, and humans and God hang out together. So already we've got God being relational. He's not just set up this kind of created playground or even like meaningful kingdom for humans to exist in and expand, but he, he comes and he relates to them. And we all know this. Um, and so we've got some good God with us there already. But the element of the story that I want to focus on, and this is uh, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, is what happens after it all goes wrong. So as we know, God creates this heaven and earth, and it's great. People hang out. Um, God gives them free will. Unfortunately, um, Adam and Eve choose to use that free will to disobey God, and they're separated from him, and they're cast out of the garden. And what happens next is, uh, we'll, we'll pick the story up in Genesis 4, and it goes like this. Um, Adam made love to his wife. Ooh, awkward. Sorry. I'm a youth worker, so that's always a bit of a cringe. Um, Adam made love to his wife, Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain, his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. And we'll just stop there because so far that's kind of like our caricature of God, isn't it? That's kind of God is distant, he's arbitrary, he's, uh, he's looked down on these offerings, he goes, yeah, good, no, no good. We don't really have any detail why. Um, they've both brought good bits, you know. Abel's brought the, f- the fat offering, which is, I guess, kind of the choicest bit, you know. If you've got you, a, a, an underfed sheep isn't going to have very much fat, so, you know, good job he's, you know, so this is his best ones and... and um, Abel's brought some, um, Cain's brought some, some fruit and um, a veg, maybe. Um, uh, but, you know, God's gone, great, yeah, fine with that, not fine with that. Um, and it's kind of this thing of, well, well, that's a bit unfair. Like, how is that very relational? But I think that, that what happens next, I think, is, is so interesting. And I think it's, I find that it's, we really easily forget that this bit is even in this story right at the very beginning. So, Uh, As we say, Cain is very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not know what's right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And I think that's really interesting. So we don't really get the detail. We just kind of have to guess what was wrong with Cain's offering and, and what was right with Abel's. We don't really know. But I love that in this situation... God comes and speaks with Cain. He's not just like, yep, yeah, good, no, not good, you know, and then you get the boot. But actually he, he says, look, you've got a choice in this moment right now. You can come and you can talk to me about it and you can be honest with why you're angry and you can, we, can, we can talk about that and you can put it right and we can be friends, we can relate again and you can have a good relationship with your brother. And if you don't, you're giving yourself over to something that is not good, something that is bad for you and bad for everyone. Um, you know, don't do it. And he doesn't, I think he's even quite, I think he's quite like, um, he's not 
particularly judgmental in the way he does it. He's quite open. He leaves Cain free to respond. He says, you know, what's going on, Cain? Why are you angry? Why are you so upset? Talk to me about it. Um, they show that God's not just happy to leave Cain feeling in this like really black mood, in, well, in a murderous mood, but he comes and to be with him in it. Now, unfortunately, as we know, Cain doesn't take God up on that offer, and, and he goes out and kills his brother. But we see right at the start that God is comes and involves himself, and he relates to us. And even in kind of situations that are dark and horrible, as well as ones that are good, and, and he, where he celebrates with us. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this as a continuing thread. So the whole book of Psalms, for example, shows people who clearly understand that God is there and cares about their lives and wants to be involved with them even if it's hard for them to see at this point how God is involved with them. But there's, even in that, there's some incredible honesty that people are prepared to talk to God in really kind of stark ways. Like, what are you doing, God? Why is this going on? Why is this really hard? Have you forgotten us? What, I thought you liked things that were good, God. Why, why are these evil things happening? These are people who clearly understand that God can be related to. And this is in the Old Testament. Um, and, and we see that again and again, we see this thing of God is really committed to coming and being with us, even when we reject him, even when we do the things that he doesn't like, even when we do the things that, that um, get in the way of that relationship with him. I think one of the kind of strongest openings to any book in the Bible is in Malachi. In Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, we see it opens like this. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? So that's kind of like God has said, I'm, I'm here. I've given you this love all the time. And how do you respond? You say, what have you ever done for us, God? And, but God still comes and loves us. He still wants to relate to us. And that's just the Old Testament. So, of course, the ultimate demonstration of God's willingness to be in our lives and wanting to be part of this and wanting not just to be on high, dispensing judgment and, and showering blessing, but to come and be part of it and take part and understand and share with us is obviously the incarnation of Jesus. Again, this is absolutely crazy. Um, if we just look at our, the, you know, just the, even at the brief glimpse we've had of the Old Testament, and that was a real rattling through, um, th- we can see that this approach for God, the most incredible, majestic, powerful being in the whole world, it doesn't always go well for him. He often gets rejected. We often take the freedom he gives us and use it, use it as an opportunity to do evil, to act selfishly, to not bless others, to not respond to him in love. Um, and, uh, but God's response is to get more involved and not less. Um, so involved as to share our experiences. Now, I know this is something we remembered almost exactly six months ago, and in six months' time we'll be remembering it again. But I think it's really worth looking at too. Um, God, who's the creator of the whole universe, who looks down on us, who've gone and mucked it up, and says, I want to get closer to that and not further away. Now, um, I'm not a woman, and I've never even been present when a baby has been born. But um, from what I understand, it's not necessarily always mega glamorous. And sometimes it's actually, um, sometimes it's quite tough. And yeah, um, I, don't, I don't know, though. If I've got that wrong, please correct me afterwards. Um, but, but I think it's really, you know, God, God isn't short of ways he could get onto earth, even if he thought, I want to be a human. He's not short of options there. He could have, you know, just appeared on the earth. He could have come down in a blaze of glory. He could have taken the chariot that Elijah took up to heaven. That's up in heaven now, so he could ride it back down. I don't know. Like, there's, there's loads of options God's got for how we can get to earth. But the one he, the one he chooses to do is, to, is actually, no, I'm going to come and I'm going to do the same as everybody else. I'm going to come and I'm going to be born born to a human, born to parents who, you know, who aren't perfect, 
who tell him off for things that, well, he, Jesus never did any wrong. So imagine how weird that is, being the creator of the whole universe, having parents telling you to, you know, go and tidy your room or whatever, like, and, and, cho- and choosing to submit to them. I think that's absolutely nuts. Um, but anyway, we don't, we don't know lots about Jesus' childhood, um, other than the fact that he did once get in trouble with his parents for staying behind at the temple. Um, but when he, got to, when he got to being an adult, throughout his life, we saw Jesus associate himself with the weak and the needy. And he often took flack for it, in fact. Um, he, he kind of took part in the things that we did. You know, he got baptized. Jesus didn't need to get baptized. John the Baptist knew that. He said, what on earth are you talking about, Jesus? This should be the other way around. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I, this, I'm, I'm not here to kind of lord it over you. I'm, I'm coming to submit and, and to take part in, in what it means to be human. And so I'm going to do that. Um, he was misunderstood even by his family and frequently by his closest friends. He was happy for people to take up his time, even if they were only interested in what they could get from him. Not, not, even if they weren't just interested in hanging out, he was really happy to just let them take up his time. I'm not sure how often I willingly put myself in that position, and I'm not starting from the place as king of the whole universe. Um, but, but Jesus is and was, and he still did that. For me, this is so encouraging. God is not some kind of emotionless absolute who just judges us from afar. God is not, a, he's not a naive optimist either, who just has no idea about how these things could go wrong. He's just like, oh, well, I'm sure it's all fine. You know, well, you know, I'm sure they're doing all right. But he, it's not that he doesn't understand what's going on and is kind of blindly un- unaware. God knows what it's like, and Jesus has experienced the worst of it. I know we're supposed to be Christ-like, as, as you know, that's what Christians mean, doesn't it? It means little Christ. We're supposed to be like Jesus. But if I'm honest, I often look a lot more like the disciples or the Pharisees than I do Jesus. I often get it wrong. I often judge other people. Um, I'm mercenary in my approach to Jesus. I misunderstand him or fail him. Uh, And at other times, I feel like those things happen to me as well. I feel like people misunderstand me or judge me or um, fail me. The Bible says that Jesus understands this, not just from a kind of intellectual perspective, but he has experienced that, and he's with me in it. And for me, this is really encouraging. And there's loads of examples we could look at in the Gospels of this, of the way this, the way, this being the way Jesus interacts. Um, and, you know, as I said, the whole story of the Gospels is basically this is what God is coming in and doing. But um, I'll, I've just picked one, which is um, uh, in John 11. And this is about the raising of a man called Lazarus, who's one of Jesus' friends. And it goes like this. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going to go there again? And just a little aside, this isn't like a kind of overreaction. This is a genuine, this is a real concern. Like it, the, we, at the end of the bit we're about to read, just when we get to the end of that, the response from the Pharisees is, right, we really need to kill Jesus now. When at the end of this story, that's, that's the response. So this isn't kind of like a, Oh, they're, they're really angry. They're not, this isn't hyperbole. They genuinely wanted to kill Jesus. And the response of some people was, it needs to happen now at the end of this story, which is crazy. But So he is, it is real danger he's going into. Jesus replied, there are 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. 
but at night there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. Then he said, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll soon get better. They thought Jesus meant that Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant that Lazarus had died. So this is again, his Jesus' friends, they don't understand him. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there, for now you will really believe. Come, let's go and see him. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too and die with Jesus. A cheerful chap. Um, when Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everybody rises, at the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I have always believed that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. Then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, the teacher is here and wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus's grave to weep. So they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him. But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested. Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. I know we could think of loads of examples of Jesus being with people, and I just picked this one because I like it, really. But um, again, it's one of those stories. It's like quite, sh- quite nuts if you think about it. Jesus hears Lazarus is ill and decides to go and see him, even though he knows that people are going to try and stone him. They misunderstand him and hate him so much that they want to kill him for, for doing miracles. He knows the state Lazarus is in, um, and he knows what's going to happen. Um, and, we, and we know this because he has to explain to his disciples, it's all right, I'm going to go do a miracle. He's going to come back to life. And his disciples are like, what? Um, but, but actually, knowing all this, so Jesus is going, knowing that there's going to be a miracle. He knows Lazarus comes back to life. He knows all of this. But he still, when he gets there, and all the people are like really upset, some of them are like, oh, Jesus, you're so glad you're here. Some of them are like, what? you're late, Jesus. He's dead. You could have done something. He still sees all these people. He still sees their pain, and he still is moved to tears. 
which I think is remarkable because he's coming knowing that Lazarus is coming back to life. He's not going, going, well, I think I'm, I'm the son of God, so I probably should do something. Or I probably should go like some kind of politician. He's like, well, I probably need to be there and show face. He's like, he, he, know, he, he goes knowing what's going to happen, but he still can connect and engage with the people enough that he's moved by their, by their sadness, by their emotions. He doesn't think, he's not like, oh, you silly people. You, you're just not operating on a high enough spiritual plane. He, he's really sad with them. He's not so super spiritual that he can't engage with how people are feeling in the moment. And he's not so caught up in a miracle that he clearly has planned and knows his coming that he shuts himself off from, from compassion. He's not too focused on heaven that he can't feel people's sadness. And I think that's true for us now as well. Sometimes we go through terrible things in our lives that are like really genuinely painful. Um, and occasionally maybe there's a reason we can see why. But I think often there, there isn't one that we can easily discern. And... Um, you know, this, this even, this even kind of comes up in the Bible again. And there's one time in the Gospels where Jesus is like just talking and he references, makes references to disaster. It's in Luke 13. Like there's a tower that's fallen down and it's killed some people. And he, he just kind of references it as a throwaway comment. But he basically says, you know, this tower fell on these people and they died. Why, why was that? Was that because they were particularly sinful or their parents were particularly sinful? He's like, no, it's just a tragedy. It happens. It's sad. And so the Bible doesn't always give us a kind of, you know, X plus Y equals Z, you know, this th- bad thing, ha- this, someone did something wrong here and they did something wrong here and that was enough to kind of push them over the threshold and that's why these evil things happen. That, the Bible doesn't give us explanations like that. Um, and uh, sometimes that's not very satisfying, to be honest. But, um, but it, and the Bi- a lot of the time the Bible basically just says, no, <laughs> that isn't, it hasn't happened because y- they've done something wrong or you've done something wrong or or because God's evil, or because God doesn't love you. Just that it, the Bible doesn't really offer a, much of an explanation as to why it happened, other than to, set, to challenge our wrong ideas about what's happened. But the answer that the Bible often gives us is that God gets involved, and that he's there with us, 